Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 8. It seems like ages ago that we were in John chapter 8, even though it's been two weeks, it still seems like a lifetime ago that we were here. Um, the beauty of God's Word is that there is a central theme that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And that theme is the grace of God in the gospel. Our sinfulness separates us from God. His love for us will not allow that to remain. So he sends Jesus so that we could be brought back to the Father, adopted as sons and daughters. So if you preach the central point of the Bible, which, Lord willing, we always preach that somewhere in every message, at this church, you're going to come to the exact same conclusion every Sunday. And the beauty of that was last week, uh, Brian Nix preached on uh, really an overview of Romans and the theology of who we are in Jesus Christ. One of the points that he made is that we are adopted as sons and daughters. We are the family of God now. And that's exactly one of the points that Jesus is making in this text this morning. We are freed by Jesus Christ alone, and then we are adopted as sons and daughters. We are in the family of God because of what he has done. So what I want to do this morning is really just piggyback off of what Brian preached on and allow Jesus in this text to remind us of the freedom that we have in Christ, what it looks like to be free, and how unbelievably glorious the reality of true freedom is. That's what I want us to see in our text this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 30. We'll read 30 through 47, and then we will pray and ask God's blessing on our time. As Jesus spoke these things, many came to believe in him. But Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you had heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, This Abraham did not do. You weren't doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, your precious law this morning. Teach us by the power of your spirit so that we would see what it means to live as free men and women and what that freedom allows, the privilege of being your son and your daughter. God, I pray that the truth of the gospel would be something that we could never get over. It is something that we are so uh, prone to thinking that we know everything about. Prone to thinking it's the elementary principles of Christianity. You get the gospel and then you move on. God, may we not move on from the gospel this day or any day. May we be overwhelmed at the reality of what the gospel produces. And God, may that be our anchor God, with this many people in this room, it is very likely that there are doubts about who you are, concerns about maybe your love waning in the last days, and maybe you don't care as much as you used to for us. God, I pray as we see Jesus this morning, we would be reminded that there is never a reason in our lives to doubt your love. May the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ be the anchor for our souls this day and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we were together, um, we slowed down. We looked at John chapter 8, really just verse 31. And really just one idea of verse 31. John 8, verse 31, Jesus was saying, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So there is such a thing, based on that verse, as being false disciples. And that's why Jesus is saying these words. Many are believing, but Jesus is saying your belief isn't true saving belief. It's it's false belief. It's unbelieving belief. And so he says, if you are going to truly prove yourself to be a, a disciple, a true disciple of mine... Then, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Verse 33, they're going to say, the the Jewish people, the leaders and the Jewish people as a whole are going to say, we're Abraham's descendants, we've never been enslaved to anyone, which is the stupidity that is brought upon by sin because they have been enslaved not only to the Egyptians, not only to the Babylonians, not only to the Assyrians, not only to the Medo-Persians, but now also Greece right before this and now Rome. They are not free people, and yet in their sin, they lose sight of that reality. They say, how can we be made free? And Jesus says in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So we camped out on the idea of true disciples and slavery of sin. 
to be free or to be a slave. So we stopped with the slavery issue and we stared at what the Bible says about who we are apart from God's sovereign grace. I just want to remind you of that since it's been a while. We looked at five ways in which the Bible describes our bondage, our slavery in sin, before Christ comes and intervenes. The five were, number one, we are in bondage to guilt under the law. The Bible speaks about being under the law. We're in bondage to guilt under the law. We are under the penalty of the law because of our sin. Number two, we are in bondage to our own self-love and our love for the darkness. We saw all of these uh, a couple weeks ago clearly laid out in Scripture. John chapter 5, we love the darkness, so therefore we cannot come to the light. Number three, we are in bondage to the hatred for the light. We are in bondage to a hatred for God. Romans 8, we cannot please God in our flesh. We don't have the desire to do so, and we couldn't even if we had the desire to do so. Number four, we are in bondage to death. Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead men and women spiritually. We cannot raise ourselves from the dead. And number five, we are in bondage to spiritual blindness. We are already blind spiritually, and then Satan, as it were, looks at our blindness. We're blind men and women, and he puts a blindfold over blind men and women just to make sure we cannot see God. And in spite of all of our slavery... God's grace is the answer. His grace is the solution. His grace is our hope. We're dead. We can't raise ourselves. We can't choose God on our own. So we looked very briefly last time at the sovereign grace that God has given to us, that the bondage of our guilt legally under the law, 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 Christ bears our sins in his body so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. So the legal requirement of the law is paid in full by Jesus. So we are out of that bondage. We are no longer slaves to the law and to the guilt of the law. 1 Peter chapter 3.18, Jesus Christ died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. So the finished work of Jesus settles the issue. We are no longer legally under the bondage of guilt of our legal status before God. Jesus paid it all. Number two, to the bondage of self-love and the bondage of our love for the darkness, sovereign grace steps in. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 through 26, gives us the gift of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God graciously gives that to us as a gift. Undeserved favor. Grace is a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. You don't come before God and say, look at what I've done. Can I have grace now? You come before God and you say, look at all the sin that I've committed. Can I please have grace? Because I have nothing to offer you. Number three, to the bondage of our hatred for God and our love for the darkness, hatred of the light. Sovereign grace says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We love the Holy Spirit. If you don't understand sovereign grace, you don't have a reason to love the Spirit. The Spirit is the reason why you can say, I'm a, I'm a saved person. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Because the Spirit has come into your heart, has opened your eyes, has revealed the person and work of Jesus Christ, and has given you a knowledge of what he has done so that you can say, Jesus is Lord. You can't say that apart from the Spirit working in your life. If you're here in this room and you love Jesus and you submit to Jesus joyfully, you didn't do that. God did that in you. God did that. Number four, to the bondage of spiritual death. 
sovereign grace in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in his mercy, has caused us, made us to be alive. He breathed life into us. So we can't boast about what we did to get that. Just like Lazarus can't boast about, oh, look, I raised myself from the dead. He just said, I walked out of the tomb. How are you alive, Lazarus? Because God breathed life into me. Same with us. To the bondage of spiritual blindness, sovereign grace says, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, let there be light. As we see the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, let there be light we can see. Instantly, the gospel shines in our hearts gives us the light of the knowledge of God. So again, if you see Jesus as more precious than anything this world has to offer, that's a gift that God worked in your heart. So, that's the bondage and the remedy. Now what? Once we have been set free, once we are no longer slaves to sin, the bondage that we've described, what now? Well, that's what Jesus is going to describe for us. If you want to follow Jesus as a freed man or woman, as a freed member of the body of Christ, Jesus says in verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. We see this reality all over Scripture. We've seen it a bunch in John. We see this all over Scripture. There are people that claim to believe in Jesus. We call them professing Christians. But with their lifestyle, they deny Christ. Parable of the soils. Right? Mark chapter 4, um, we, we see a, a huge spectrum. There's four soils. Three of them look like they're saved. There's only one that just out and out rejects Jesus. Uh, the, the seed that falls on the soil that's just uh, by the path and the birds come eat it, snatched away before anything even happens. Just out and out rejecting Jesus. There are two soils that take the seed, start to bear a little bit of fruit, but then they cease to bear fruit. And God says, because of that, they're cast into the fire and they're burned. They're judged for that. They are not saved. There's only one of those soils that is truly saved. And it's the one soil that continually bears fruit, not perfectly, but continually. We see this in the gospel of John. We've seen it a number of times. We see this in first John. Uh, John, who writes the gospel is also has the same exact theme in 1 John. If you continue in the word of God, if you stay in the body of Christ, then you're going to prove yourself to truly be saved. But what about those people that go to church for a a while, for a good portion of their life, and then they leave? What happens to them? Were they saved? and Did they lose their salvation? What, What happened? John tells us very clearly, they leave, they went out from us because they were never really of us. They were never truly of us. It's the same idea here. Truly being a disciple has characteristics to it. And if you leave and you don't remain in the church, remain in the body of Christ, remain a follower of Jesus Christ, then you never were to begin with. We see this all over. Wheat and tares uh, that Jesus describes, we don't know who they are until the last day. We don't know. So in these words, I think that Jesus would encourage us to examine our hearts. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. But I think that you will see very clearly from what Jesus is going to say, the defining characteristics of what it means to truly be a disciple. So just two points for our outline this morning. Number one, the defining characteristics of a true disciple. The defining characteristics of a true disciple. And then number two, the unbelievable reality of being a true disciple. The unbelievable reality of being a true disciple. What comes with it? The privileges that come with being a true disciple. So number one, the defining characteristics. 
if Jesus says that there's a possibility that you can be a false disciple of his, then our greatest question should be, okay, can you tell me how to test whether I'm a true disciple or a false disciple? And Jesus would say, gladly, here's the test. If you continue in my word, some of your translations, the ESV says, if you abide in my word, abide, remain, stay fixed. If you remain in my word, then you are truly a disciple of mine. So what's the defining characteristic? Endurance, perseverance. That's the benchmark of being a true disciple. It's a life patterned by obedience and continually following Christ. Is it asking for perfection? By no means. No. Um, I think that when we are younger, we have this sense, very naively so, that when we become Christians, our sanctification just looks like, like this. And it just goes up. Um, it, it tends biblically to look more like a, a decently yielding 30-year stock where it just kind of goes, uh, oh, like, you know, the pits out at the bottom where you think, oh, I lost all my money. And then, oh, a couple of years later, oh, oh, oh no. But there's a, a curve going up that, okay, it's gaining. Some days it looks like you aren't gaining at all. Some days it looks like you've hit the jackpot. The Bible describes that wrestle in sanctification. And I know that um, that was the last point that Brian made from God's word last week. Don't expect perfection in this life. So Jesus is not saying, if you are perfect, you are truly a disciple. All he's saying is, if you stay with me. If you stay with me. This is contrasted with John chapter 6, right? John chapter 6, Jesus preaches and everybody says, hard words, man. We're out of here. They don't remain in his word. They don't remain with him. So if you remain, you prove yourself to truly be saved. You don't get saved because you remain. You remain because you're saved. This, again, is all over the scriptures. Remember Sermon on the Mount? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a parable. There's a man who built his house on a rock, a man who built his house on the sand. What's the difference between those two? The difference in context is that one says, the man who builds his house on the rock says, I'm going to do what you tell me to do, and he does it. He builds his house on the word of God, and he abides in it, and he does what God tells me to do. The one who builds his house on the sand says, I'll do what you tell me, God. But then he fails to do it. And that's why when the waves come and the storms come, the house is blown over. It's endurance. Perseverance. It's remaining in the word of God. Matthew 10, verse 22. Jesus said, you will be hated by all because of my name. Not the typical verse that we use when we're evangelizing. Um, Come to Jesus because you'll be hated by all. Jesus promises, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. It's okay if they hate you. When trials come, when persecution comes, endure. If you say, I'm done, I'm out. You'll be one of those soils, right? In tribulation, in distress, you say, I've had enough, and you leave. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we must love Jesus. He must be our cherished treasure above all things. If we're truly saved, that's what we're fighting for. 
And if that is how we view Jesus, we're going to keep his commandments. Verse 21, he who keeps my commandments loves me. So obedience is the evidence of our regeneration. By the way, this is so crucial. So many people, uh, you probably have discipled many people. You've talked with many people who just say, I keep on struggling with this sin. What should I do? There's many different ways you can work through that issue. Accountability, work on killing the sin, memorize scripture, all those different things. But according to John 14, if you love Jesus, you'll keep his commandments. So what is ultimately at stake in your sinning is that you don't love Jesus enough. You love sin more than you love Jesus. That's the bottom. That's what sin is, right? Sin is loving anything more than you love Jesus. So at the bottom level of your fight for sanctification and obedience, I would encourage you to fight for love. Fight to love Jesus. Fight to love him more than you love anything else, everything else. Because if you do that perfectly, you'll never sin. We sin because we take our eyes off of Christ. But fight to love him. You say, okay, how do I do that? How do I fight to love him? Verse 32. John chapter 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You will know the truth. If you continue in my word, you're truly a disciple. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what does Jesus refer to, or what does he mean when he says, my word, when he says, the truth? What are we to remain in? What are we to abide in? Why does he say, my word, singularly? I believe he's saying, everything that I am, everything that I've taught you, all-encompassing, everything that I am, remain in me. Remain in who I am. This is uh, John chapter 15. We'll get there in a couple months, hopefully, Um, not too much longer than a couple months, but John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. You can bear much fruit if you're that branch who abides in me. And then he says, abide in me and let my words abide in you. So everything that Jesus teaches is all who he is. Abiding in him is abiding in his word. Abiding in his word is abiding in him. This is why he says, by the way, in Matthew 28, um, go to the, all, all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Because all of the, the commands that I've given to you are the essence of who I am and who you're following. I've always wondered if somebody in that statement, you know, Jesus is about to ascend, and they're just watching him, just blown away. He's raised from the dead. And he says, go into all the world. Yes, we're going to go. We're going to be missionaries. Baptize people in the name. Make disciples. Yes, this is great. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Awesome. And teach them to observe all I've commanded you. I wonder if somebody in that moment went, do we have all that he commanded us? Like, did we write that down? Does, does somebody have a list of everything? Because he commanded a lot. Why did he do that? Because he wanted to reveal God perfectly. So he says, abide in my word and you will be abiding perfectly in the Father, remaining in the character of the Father. You'll know the truth, the truth of God, the truth of God's word. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Practically, if you want to know Jesus and if you want to love Jesus, you must be much in his word. Be much in the word of God. I know we say that a lot. 
But the reality is you cannot love somebody that you do not know. You cannot cherish and treasure somebody that you know little about. To cherish Jesus, you must be much in his word. Jesus is known chiefly through his word. Yes, God is known through creation. Yes, God is known in many different ways that he reveals himself. But chiefly, the best way to know who God is, is to study his word. Write down 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21. This is one of my favorite verses in regards to how God reveals himself. The passage says this, The Lord revealed himself to Samuel. Now, we know how God reveals himself in the Old Testament. He shows up. He speaks. He does miracles. He prophesies. But here, the verse continues, The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. How are you to gain an access to the revelation of God? It's through his word. Even in the Old Testament, that's how he's doing it. Reading the Bible is your lifeline to remaining saved. It's your lifeline to continuing as a disciple of Jesus. Those who say, don't really care much about the Bible, don't want to read the Bible, don't really care about studying who God is, I'm fine. If nothing changes, we'll prove that they were never saved to begin with. So, if you continue in my word, then you are truly a disciple of mine. What does it mean to continue? It just means to remain, to be stuck, abide, uh, to never let go. Literally here, it's never being let go of. God's got you and he's not going to let you go. Why do you tend to walk away from the word to anything else? What tends to grab your eye, a shine or a little glimmer somewhere else that you say, okay, I want to go after that instead of God? Would you this morning confess that as sin, as what it is, and say, you know what, I want to chase Jesus in his word and nowhere else, nowhere else. So if we are to prove ourselves to be true disciples of Jesus, We will endure, we will remain, we will persevere in the word of God, following Jesus as a a disciple, as a learner. Disciple just means learner. You will know the truth. You will know the truth, verse 32. And the truth will make you free. This is number two, point number two. We've seen the defining characteristic. It's endurance. It's obedience. It's living a, a continually obedient lifestyle. Not perfectly, but living as a sanctified believer in the word of God because he has saved you by grace. But here, number two, is the unbelievable reality of remaining a disciple. Once you are saved, once you remain a disciple and you're continuing with Christ, you're free. You will know the truth. You're not going to guess at the truth. You're not going to wonder what's right, what's wrong. You're not going to do that. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. You won't be in the dark anymore. Why? Because John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. His word is the truth. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Jesus prays to the Father, your word is truth. So Jesus is truth. His word is truth. The Bible also in John talks about the Holy Spirit being truth. It's all a matter of following God and abiding in him. But what does it produce? As I was studying this, I realized this is my prayer for all of us. 
I want you to be truly free. I want you to know real freedom, true freedom. I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to be a slave. Just stick me in bondage. Nobody does that. I think everyone deep down inside wants to be free, and they're chasing down that freedom in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus says, I can make you free, and I can make you free indeed. Drop down to verse 34. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So we have all committed sin. We are all slaves of sin. This is an answer to the Pharisees' question, to the Jewish question of we're not really slaves. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Jesus says, you're missing the point. I'm not talking about political, economic slavery. I'm talking about spiritual slavery. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. But if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed, truly free. So again, just as there's a, a way to be a false disciple, and Jesus says, I want to make you truly a disciple, so too there's a way to be falsely free, to have a false sense of freedom. And I believe with as many people as we have here, there are some of you who are walking in a false sense of freedom. And so my prayer for you as we finish this sermon is that you would hear what true freedom, freedom indeed, looks like. I want you to experience that. For you to experience true freedom, you must experience the truth. The truth will set you free. And then verse 36, you must experience the grace of the Son. The Son makes you free. You can't make yourself free. We described that the last time we got together. We started with that this sermon. You cannot do anything to get yourself free. So the Son must make you free. If the Son doesn't make you free, you will never be free. So the first step towards true freedom is to admit, I am a slave to sin and I need someone to set me free from that bondage. I need someone to pay the price to ransom me out of the slave market of sin. A slave can't go before his master and say, you know what, thanks for the the years that I've spent with you. It's just been totally enjoyable. Um, I'm done. And so I just wanted to say I'm moving on. Today is my last day. Thank you very much. I'm out of here. Slave can't do that. The master would say, no, you're not locking you up. You're done. Slave can't do that. Somebody needs to show up. A free person needs to show up and say, I want to buy that slave. And I want to take that slave and offer that slave freedom. A slave cannot make themselves free. So the son must make you free. What is the slavery that Jesus speaks of here in verse 34? If you commit sin, you're a slave of sin. I believe it has two facets. The two facets that we struggle with in our slavery to sin. Number one, sin enslaves by producing compelling desires. We've been studying this in our small group. Our our hearts are idle factories. We have sinful desires that produce compelling desires to embrace this or pursue that. And we ultimately say that, whatever that is, is better than Jesus. That's one enslavement. That we we prefer something other than Jesus. But number two, if something doesn't intervene, sin will lead you to hell. 
We are slaves to sin in two ways. Our desires are enslaved to something other than Jesus. And our lives are enslaved to condemnation forever, separated from Jesus. So many people would say right now, I'm free to do whatever I want to do. I love my sin. I enjoy it. I'm free to choose it. Nobody's telling me I can't. I'm free. And I would say, yes, you are. But you're not truly free. Because true freedom won't kill you in the end. Um, To choose a path, freely choosing a path that leads to your destruction, that's not true freedom. Right? We would all say that. That's not true freedom. So, everyone around you in this world that thinks they're free to do whatever they want, to choose their sin, to glory in their sin, you need to graciously show them that they're enslaved to it because in the end it brings death. So Jesus comes and frees us. If the Son makes you free, he does the freeing. And those two aspects of slavery, he addresses. Number one, he addresses the ultimate end of our slavery to sin by dying the death that we deserve so that we don't have to die that anymore. That death is done. That penalty is paid. So we're freed in that regard. But then secondly, we're freed to desire him over sin now. Now we love him more than we love sin. Sure, we go back to sin, but now we ultimately have the ability to desire Jesus and to follow him and to love him more than we love sin. Jesus frees us by taking our condemnation, by becoming a curse for us, and he frees us from the enslavement to the desire to sin by becoming our greatest treasure, by releasing the hold that sin has on us to be free to chase after him. So, if we're we're going to describe what this freedom looks like, I would say it this way, and I'm helped by John Piper in this definition of freedom. And this analogy, Um, you are fully free. True freedom involves four things. True freedom involves four things. You have to be able to have the desire, the ability, the opportunity to do whatever will make you happy in a thousand years. You have to have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity, and it has to lead you to pleasure for a thousand years. Okay, that's why we're talking about a lot of people say, oh, I have the desire to sin and I can do it. I have the ability to sin. I can do it. I have the opportunity to sin. I can do it. But in the end, you will regret those decisions because you will spend forever in hell separated from God because you are not truly free. So full freedom is having the desire, the ability and the opportunity to do what will leave you with no regrets on the last day. That's true freedom. That's why the Bible, by the way, is not oppressive. I mean, how many people in this world say, I don't want to follow the Bible because it's just a bunch of rules and regulations. It's oppressive. I don't want it. The Bible is the last thing, the furthest things from oppression. The Bible grants you true freedom because it grants you a path to everlasting life. So if you don't have the desire to do something, you're not truly free. You can fight hard against your desires, but you're not free. That's not freedom. Just constantly be saying, I don't want to do this, but I'll do it anyway. That's not freedom. If you have the desire, but you don't have the ability to do it, then you're not free to do whatever you're desiring to do. If you have the desire, the ability, but no opportunity to do it, you're not free. And if you have the desire, the ability, and the opportunity, but it destroys you in the end, you are never free to begin with. Spiritually, no one can make these four things happen in your life. 
to desire righteousness, to have the ability to live out righteousness, to have the opportunity in this life to be righteous, and ultimately to not wind up in destruction in the end. Nobody can give you that freedom except for Jesus. So, to help with this understanding of freedom, there's a a somewhat lengthy analogy that I've found incredibly helpful. Four levels, four kinds of freedom, but we don't want just any sort of freedom. We want to be free indeed, truly free. So, let's take skydiving, something that I'm sure everybody just is jumping at the chance to do. I remember that used to be something that I wanted to do so badly. And every year that I live my life, exponentially, I don't want to do it anymore. It's like the end of Ecclesiastes. It says, it's hard getting old because when you get old, you've seen enough accidents happen in life that you don't even want to walk out your front door because you think you'll get hit by a car. So um, I'm experiencing that with skydiving. This is something I was going to save up and go, no, meh. Somebody gave that to me as a gift. I'd go, "Mm, refund maybe? Can we refund it? Skydiving. You want to feel the exhilaration of falling from a plane, okay? So you get in your car. You head to whatever airport they're going to fly you out of. And as you're driving in your car to head to the airport to get there by 11 o'clock, you run into a ditch, hit a telephone pole, your car is totaled, and you miss your appointment. You have the desire to go skydiving, but you no longer have the opportunity because you missed your window. You can't go skydiving anymore. So you're not free to skydive because you've missed your window of opportunity. Even though you have the desire and you have the ability, you've missed your window of opportunity. Let's say you make it to the airport and you get to the airport and you go to the classroom and they say, all right, we're ready. Let's uh, strap on the parachutes. Let's uh, hit the plane. And they check you for your understanding of the classes that you were supposed to have taken to skydive, you know, four hours or however long you have to do these classes to know what to do. And you say, oh, I haven't done those. And they say, well, you can't go unless you do those classes. So you have the, the desire and you have the opportunity to jump on the plane and go, but you don't have the ability because you haven't been a part of those classes. You haven't been taught. So you make it to the airport. You've taken the classes. You get in the plane. You go up. I don't even know how high they go up. You go up very, very high. And as the door opens, uh, you just scream like a little girl and you think this was the dumbest decision I've ever made. So you have the ability... You have the opportunity, but the desire has left. No more desire. Gone. Now, here's where people, when, when we think, oh, I'll just force myself. If, if your instructor were behind you and just pushed you out, is that true freedom to say, I don't want to do this, and somebody go, I'm forcing you to do it? That's not true freedom. You'd not be happy in that moment. So you must have the ability, the opportunity, and the desire. But we're not done because most people stop there and with their sin, they're fine. And they live the freest lives that they think they could possibly live. You get to the airport. You've taken the classes. You fly in the plane. The door opens. You have the desire. You jump. And as you're falling, you realize your parachute doesn't work. You have the desire, you jumped, you have the ability, you took the classes, you have the opportunity, you made it. 
to the plain. But now you realize you're not truly free because in a matter of seconds you're going to be dead. This is what non-believers don't understand. In the free fall of our lives, they think, I can fall and there will always be a parachute. Biblically, the reality is we are born with no parachute falling. Jesus graciously becomes our parachute to save us. That would be enough to truly be free. But there's one last thing. Jesus says, verse 35, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain. Using the same words, by the way, uh, in the Greek, meno, uh, remain, abide, continue, uh, in verse 31. Same word. So he's using the same idea. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son does. What is he saying? He's saying, you think you're free right now. Just like a slave who lives in a house that's attached, a room that's attached to the house, will we'll sleep there, will live there, will come in, will serve, and he sees all of the beauty. She sees everything that's in that house. And for a moment, she can exist as if she were the master of that house. But at the end of the day, she has to go back. He has to go back. Doesn't get to stay there. Has to leave. Oh, how much the slave wants to stay. They just see everything that could possibly be theirs if only they were free, but they can't because they're not free. But he says the son remains forever, abides forever, continues forever. The son of the master is free indeed. So the defining characteristic of being a disciple is to continue in the word. And the reality, the unbelievable reality of being a disciple is, number one, you are truly free. You're truly free to choose Jesus. You're truly free to follow him. You're truly free to have the ability now to pursue Christ and say no to sin. You can't do that if you're a non-believer. You cannot say no ultimately to your sin. But now you have that freedom. And ultimately you're freed from the penalty of sin. You're freed from the power of sin. And one day you'll be freed from the presence of sin altogether in heaven. But even more than that, one step further, as if that weren't enough, it would be... It would be gracious of God if in Jesus Christ he lavished upon us the ability to go to hell for one second and then cease to exist. That would have been gracious of God to taste the punishment we deserve and then just make us cease to exist. That would have been grace upon grace. God would have been good to have done that. God would have been good and gracious if he would have said, you know what, you deserve an eternity in hell. I won't give you hell at all. I'll just send you to a place between heaven and hell and you'll just exist there forever. God would have been gracious if he would have just snuffed us out of existence altogether and we just ceased to exist at the end of our lives. God is gracious to allow us the privilege and the access to heaven to be with him forever, but that's not even the extent and the fullness of his grace. God is gracious to say, you who were once my enemy, you're not only my friend, you not only get to stay with me in heaven forever and not bear the punishment you deserve, but you are my son. You are my daughter. You are in my family. The greatest picture of the gospel physically is marriage. Ephesians 5 describes that. The second greatest picture, a very close second, is adoption. Physical adoption. We have people, even in this room, who have been adopted. People who are adopted don't choose 
I want that person to adopt me. It's the exact same thing with God. God says graciously, I'm going to choose to adopt you. Did we say, hey, pick us, pick us? No. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't free. And it cost God. He loved to do it. To make us his son and his daughter. You and I, because of God's declaration, are adopted into his family. And because of that, we remain forever. There is never a chance where God will say, it was a wrong choice to adopt that person. You're out of the family. Once adopted, you are a part of, even as we've described it with the Turners, right? The forever family of God. Never to be let go. And because you're a part of the family of God, you are seen, the Bible says, as co-heirs with Christ. Brother and sister to Jesus himself. We might know that intellectually, but can I just tell you from just the experience of the last three weeks, that truth is what gets you through trials. Because if I know that I've been adopted by Jesus and that he holds me and that he loves me, if I know that, then whatever comes, it's okay because God's adopted me and he will never call me anything else but a son. He's saved me. He's made me his own. And because he declared it, not because of anything that I've done, but because he says that it is so, you are my son I've purchased you and I'm never letting you go. That's it. We are exactly who he declares us to be. And because of that, we can cry out. Galatians says, Abba, Father, Daddy. Now we have a relationship with Jesus and with the Father where the Father is no longer our judge, but our Daddy. We can climb up into his lap. We can enjoy him. We can rest in him. Now we have the desire for him. We have the ability to be with him. We have the opportunity every day to be with him. And we will remain with him forever in heaven for all of eternity. We are free indeed. To that end, I want to encourage you. We're going to listen to a song. Remember the cost. Um, Jesus paid to adopt you. And as he paid to adopt you, it was a cost that was so great. First John chapter 3. Oh, see what the, the love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God and such we are. We are. So, two quick things. Number one, if you do not know that you are adopted as a son or daughter of Jesus Christ by the grace of God alone, if you do not know that today if you were to die and stand before God, if you don't know where you would wind up, if you don't know your eternal destiny is with him in peace forever in paradise, there's a way for you to be adopted today. For you to cease to be an enemy of God and to be his friend, to be his son or his daughter. There's a way. And it's admitting your own slavery to sin, your helpless condition before God, and turning from your sin, turning to Jesus right now, and saying, Jesus, save me, give me grace. And then continue in his word with him. I would love to be able to help you make that decision today to follow Jesus. Number two, if you are saved... I think that there is no greater way to spurn the Savior than to doubt his love, which we do all the time, right? We do all the time. But it's as if in those moments that we say, God, do you really love me? It's as if God says to us right now, what else would you have me do to prove that I love you? I gave you my son. 
so that you could cease to be my enemy and you could be my son and my daughter forever. I love you. I love you as much as I love my son. So my question to you today is, what would you have God do to prove his love for you other than the cross? I pray that as we meditate on these words straight from 1 John 3, the question of does God love me or not would just fly away. As we see forever, I have no reason to question his love. He has lavished his grace on me. And come what may, I'm in the house of God forever. I'm in the house of God forever. God, thank you for adopting us. Thank you for calling us to yourself. May the love of Jesus Christ be the anchor for our soul in this moment and forevermore. Amen.